Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey, joining you from a coffee shop in Calumet, Michigan. Thank you so much, Mary, for joining us today. Absolutely. I'm always up for an adventure, Aaron. But recently, the USCCB Committee for Religious Liberty worked with scholars to produce a series of essays on some foundational topics in religious freedom. And over the course of this year, we will be publishing those essays on our website, www.usccb.org slash firstfreedomblog. Our first piece from this project will be from Richard Garnett, giving a basic working definition of religious liberty. Rick is a professor at the law school at the University of Notre Dame, and he served as a consultant to our predecessor committee uh, the Ad Hoc Committee for Religious Liberty. So he's a longtime friend of ours. Um, Professor Garnett, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So let's just jump right in. Um, you know, at the beginning of your essay, that pretty much all Americans agree on the importance of religious liberty. And you know, if any polling data you read is going to show that Americans, all Americans value religious freedom, will say that they value religious freedom. Um, but when we answer those survey questions, do we all mean the same thing by the term religious freedom? No, I, I suspect we don't. Um, so some might think that religious freedom is simply the, the right to believe what you want to believe. Um, that is, everybody in America is probably on board with, with the idea that the government should not pick an official religion and require people to uh, profess it. Um, but that's actually a pretty limited understanding of religious freedom. I mean, it's a good thing to, to have it, but um, in our traditions, we've thought of religious freedom as including more than that. Uh, not only the right to believe, but the right to gather with other believers uh, in communities, the rights of religious communities to govern themselves and to determine for themselves what they'll believe, who their teachers and leaders will be. And where things get more controversial, I suppose, is when we get to the question of what about religiously motivated actions? Uh, belief is one thing, action some people might think is another. And of course, for most people, religious belief is not simply about believing something, but it's about acting on that something. Certainly that's been true uh, for Christians. Part, part of what it means to be a Christian has included uh, engaging, for example, in acts of mercy in the real world and providing care to the vulnerable and so on. So where we're seeing divisions over religious liberty these days um, tends to be with respect to questions about the actions of religious believers and groups out there in the real world, because sometimes those actions might well be in conflict with certain government regulations. My own view is that if we take religious freedom seriously, um, we will be very careful about enacting regulations that, that limit the ability of religious believers to act out their faith. Obviously, religious freedom can't be absolute or unlimited. Uh, we can all think of examples of conduct that we want the government to regulate, whether or not it was religiously motivated. But I tend to think, and I, I think this has been the American tradition, generally speaking, that the government should err on the side of accommodating religious 
believers and religiously motivated action, even when it's inconvenient to do so. Uh, but that's where some of the controversies are developing today. And you kind of get some of that with the term um, freedom of worship seems like it became more popular at some point because that sort of suggests without overtly saying so, but it kind of suggests that like, well, sure, you still have religious freedom as long as we don't interfere in kind of in, in your sacramental or, or your, your interior life. Um, and it could still be and people, I think, still sincerely believe that they're protecting religious freedom. Sure. Is that right? And again, historically, um, to achieve was a pretty big deal. After uh, King Henry VIII took over the church in England, for example, it was illegal for Catholics to worship publicly. Uh, thankfully, that's that's not the rule anymore. But even today, in some um, in some countries, uh, it's it's technically legal to be of a certain religion, so long as you don't engage in any what they call proselytism. You don't engage in any efforts to convert or to evangelize. So there are countries around the world where Christians, in theory, have the freedom of worship, but not the freedom to do much else. And again, in America, the religious freedom has almost always meant more than just freedom of worship. And so I think it's appropriate to be concerned when we see um, American officials, uh, especially in the context of foreign affairs, adopting this language of freedom of worship. Again, that's a, to make sure that other countries uh, provide, but that can't be all that it means for us. So in your talking about, in, in this essay that we'll be releasing pretty soon, you know, you say that there are basically three views of religious freedom. I, I found your taxonomy helpful. Um, one time I had to give a talk to a, in a diocese about um, Pope Francis and religious freedom. And I thought you're, I actually thought that your kind of way of breaking it up was helpful and memorable. Um, so can you talk about what are these three views that you, that you describe in this essay? Um, first of all, just give us the basic description of them. Yeah, now I should um, I should be clear that this uh, this categorization is not original to me. I, I wish I could say I thought of it because I think it's pretty clever, but um, but it's not mine. Uh, but in the in the essay and in other places, I've talked about the freedom from religion, the freedom of religion, and then freedom for religion, and. These three different ways of thinking about religious freedom, they are distinguishable, I think. You can have all three, but it's, um, it's important to not settle for just one. That is, it's particularly important to not settle for, quote unquote, freedom from religion. Um, so when I say freedom from religion, uh, you know, there's a, a law firm called the Freedom From Religion Foundation, and they're pretty energetic uh, litigators. And what they mean is, they don't believe that religion should intrude into the public life of our political community um, and into the public square of civil society. So they want to say that uh, part of what religious, religious freedom means is that people who don't want to be exposed to or affected by religion have a right to kind of keep it away from in some instances, I think this, this way of thinking is quite misguided. I don't believe that anybody has a right to sort of go through life demanding that they never are exposed to other people's religion. That's unless you want to live in a bubble, that, that's going to happen to you. But there is, a, there is an aspect of that freedom from formulation that 
I think we can embrace. And that is that nobody should be coerced to embrace or practice a religion that is not their own. This is made very clear in the opening paragraphs of the Second Vatican Council's Declaration on Religious Freedom, that part of what it means to be human and to have human dignity is to have the freedom to respond freely uh, when it comes to the search for truth and the search for God. So if we think of it in those terms, freedom from religion is an important first step. Again, it, it, it shouldn't mean that the government um, silences religious believers in the public square so that nobody else is ever bothered by them. In a pluralistic society, you're always going to be exposed to things that are maybe different uh, than your own views, and that's that's fine. But if we think of it just in terms of no coercion, that's a, that's a good first start. People should be free to choose their own religion, and that includes the right to choose not um, to embrace religion. Now, for us, for those of us who are Christians and, and, and Catholic Christians, it's not that we think all religions are the same or that there's no such thing as religious truth. I mean, we believe that there is um, a truth about the world and that um, you know, God made us to know, love him and serve him in this world and be happy with him in the next. And we're supposed to be pursuing the good of religion. And yet we also believe as Catholics that the uh, choice to embrace what God has revealed needs to be a voluntary one. So that's kind of my thinking of freedom from. Do you want me to keep going? Yes, please. <laughs> okay. Well, the middle one, uh, freedom of religion, what, what I mean by that is, um, it's think of it as... Um, an equality rule. So in a, in a political community that has freedom of religion, this is basically a way of saying that so far as the government's concerned, it doesn't matter what religion you are. Um, you are, uh, citizenship doesn't depend on what your religion is. Um, you know, your ability to go to university or to vote uh, shouldn't depend on what religion you are. And we can take it even farther and say, you know, um, religious activities should be treated no worse than um, similar secular activities. So on this view, you know, if, um, if we have secular hospitals, well, you know, religious communities should be able to run hospitals and religious schools should be able to operate on equal terms with non-religious or state-run schools. Um, if the government has a scholarship program like Pell Grants or perhaps a school choice program, people should be able to use those benefits at qualified religious schools as well as secular schools. Again, the idea here is equal treatment, non-discrimination, and so on. Again, this is this is a very important dimension of religious freedom, as I'm going to suggest. I don't think it is quite enough, but it's it's good. And the Supreme Court has very much embraced this idea. Uh, you know, over the last 40 years or so, there's been a lot of twists and turns in the court's religious freedom uh, doctrines. But it seems pretty well entrenched now that the government is not supposed to discriminate against religious believers or religious practices. The Supreme Court just recently ruled that it was unconstitutional for the state of Montana to exclude religious schools from a scholarship or a tax credit program that it was running. And this coming year, I'm, I'm really excited. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case that I've been following for almost 30 years now out of um, the state of Maine. Uh, Maine has a policy of allowing kids to use public funds to attend the high school of their choice, even if it's not their local high school, but it can't be religious. It can be a super fancy prep school, but it can't be a Catholic school. 
And I'm very confident that the Supreme Court is going to invalidate that practice and say, no, if, if Maine is giving people money to pay for high school education, then the beneficiaries of that program have to be able to use that money at a religious school too. So that's, again, my thinking about freedom of religion is that um, it, it means that religion and religious believers and religious institutions are completely free to participate in public life uh, and to enjoy public benefits on equal terms of everybody else. Um, this is a rule of denominational equality, right? No preferences between Presbyterians and Methodists say, but also it's a broader rule that doesn't permit the government to disadvantage religious practices and believers at the expense of non-religious ones. It seems like, just to jump in real quick, it seems like this came up in a big way with COVID restrictions. This was, this. it seemed to me that, um, that the argument often made um, for lifting some restrictions was precisely this kind of freedom of religion type argument of you can't allow these other businesses or, or institutions to open up and then have worse restrictions on on religious communities. Is that do you think that that's a fair way to for sure to read that? That's a, that's a great illustration of of the point. As people probably know, there were disputes around the country having to do with COVID-related regulations, particularly regulations on public gatherings. And um, over the course of the pandemic, the court, especially the Supreme Court, considered a number of these cases and controversies. And I, I think the justices were sensitive to the fact that, you know, we didn't necessarily know what was going on and we, uh, we were appropriately nervous about the risks uh, associated with public gatherings. But as the year went on, uh, the, the Supreme Court gradually, but I think firmly and clearly, uh, told local officials and state governments, look, you have broad authority to respond to a pandemic and to enact public health related restrictions. But when you're doing that, you can't treat religious gatherings worse than other similar gatherings. It's important to know the claim wasn't that, you know, any regulation of a religious gathering is unconstitutional. Uh, that, that's a different, that would be a different argument. It was a, it was a more modest claim, again, a freedom of religion claim, which was take Nevada, for example. I mean, they were allowing casinos to pack the house, but they weren't permitting um, indoor religious gatherings except under very stringent conditions. And, you know, you'd see pictures of these cavernous churches in New York or Los Angeles where you know, only 10 people were permitted to come into a place that seats thousands, but at the same time, it was totally fine to, you know, pack the Costco. So, so too with outdoor gatherings in particular, right? I mean, obviously early in the pandemic, there were strict limits on all outdoor gatherings, but as time went on, there seemed, it seemed as though religious gatherings were being singled out for more disfavorable treatment. And this was particularly the case um, in New York uh, when the Supreme Court intervened in that that controversy. So you're exactly right to raise that as an example, that one of the things freedom of religion means is that religious activity needs to be treated at least as well, and at least as favorably as comparable secular activity. I, I think that what you just described as freedom of religion, I think that that seems, you know, pretty intuitively appealing. Like you said, it seems to me like a, lo a lot of arguments 
on some of these big public cases are made in freedom of religion type terms. But generally speaking, for those of us who, who work in religious, who do religious liberty type work, and especially from the religious perspective, we, we want to promote this freedom for religion. Um, can you talk about that? What is, what is freedom for religion? How is that any better than freedom of religion? Well, I think it's a it's a complement to the first two senses that I've mentioned. It's it's a it's a supplement, um, and I think it's it's crucially important. So maybe the first place to start is just to realize that, especially in the Christian tradition, freedom it doesn't mean merely the absence of restraint. That freedom has this positive dimension too. Um, to be free to do X, it's not only um, that you're not forbidden by the government from doing X. It's that you actually have the capacity and uh, to do X. So when I say freedom for religion, I'm thinking really, um, I, I get this idea again from others, but um, I think it comes through really clearly in the Second Vatican Council's Declaration on Religious Freedom, where uh, in the same document where the Council Fathers say that coercion in religious matters is not permissible, they say, uh, but this doesn't mean governments shouldn't care about religion um, or that they should be indifferent to it. Um, instead, the Council Fathers said that governments should take care that the conditions for religious freedom are healthy and that governments should want to enact policies that help religious believers and religious communities to flourish. Again, to do so in a non-coercive way. But the point is freedom for religion, it treats religious freedom as a good thing, as something that we want. Just like we want clean air and clean water, we should want it to be the case that people are able to enjoy religious freedom. And that includes religious groups. So just as an example, um, uh, consider the tax exemptions that exist for uh, religious and other charitable organizations. Um, if all we were thinking of was freedom from religion or even freedom of religion, we wouldn't necessarily decide that religious institutions should be tax exempt. We might say, look, businesses are tax exempt, so we'll tax the churches too. But we don't do that. With respect to churches and other nonprofits, our policy has been to say, look, we want these things to survive and even to flourish. And in order to do so, we're going to take a light touch in terms of some regulations and we're going to exempt them from uh, certain tax rules. Is this kind of special treatment for religion? Yeah, it is. Um, but it's special treatment that is appropriate because in our tradition, we're not indifferent or neutral to religion. We think religious freedom is a good thing. Now, in the American tradition, one of the ways that we've tried to protect religious freedom is to not have official government establishments of religion. But our establishment clause is not an anti-religious provision. It's a provision that's designed to keep government out of religion precisely in order to um, make it possible for religion to govern itself, for religious institutions to govern themselves and to flourish. So my, my thinking with freedom for religion is that good governments should be thinking not only about ignoring religion or leaving it alone or being kind of religion blind, it's important to be neutral, but we can do more. We can think about policies, again, that make it possible for religious institutions to do their good work, to flourish, 
to govern themselves. And this is gonna mean sometimes that religious institutions are treated specially, they're treated distinctively, but that's okay. That's not unfair. That's not, um, that's not coercion. That's just recognition by the government that part of what human flourishing and the common good involve is a healthy, robust, lively freedom of religion. So I think freedom for religion is an important part of the big picture. You know, you could imagine a community that stopped at freedom of religion. Um, that would be a better community than one that didn't have freedom of religion, but we can do more. And I think, again, in the American tradition, I think we have done more, but increasingly there's, if you talk about things that are controversial, there are those who say, look, religion is nothing special. You know, some people like football, some people like environmentalism, some people like religion. It's, it's no different than anything else. Um, yeah, churches make people happy, but so do soccer teams. And on this line of argument, it's inappropriate to treat religion with any kind of special solicitude. But I think that's a mistake. And I think American law and traditions and history, if you understand them correctly, uh, they point in the freedom for religion direction also. Professor Garnett, it, it almost it sounds like what you're talking about is a would be would you say this is the authentically more authentically Catholic version or view of these three views, like the most robust or in agreement with uh, Catholic vision of, of religious liberty? I mean, in terms of you know, we we would like for everyone to be Catholic. Catholic faith offers the fullness of truth, as you said earlier, but but in a very real way, love love involves choosing that for oneself. And so, you know, these three views, it's it's Catholic and American at the same time. I, I believe so. And, and, and to say that is, it's not to say that the founders um, were thinking as Roman Catholics, they weren't. But uh, it is to say, I think, um, and, you know, John Courtney Murray made this point in the 50s and 60s in his work, and St. Pope John Paul II emphasized it a lot in his uh, writings and addresses on religious freedom, that uh, the Catholic proposal about religious freedom is one that combines respect for the freedom of the individual to search for him or herself and to choose for him or herself how and whether to embrace God. So kind of this appreciation for the importance of freely embracing religion. At the same time, the church proposes that, as you said, the fullness of truth is instantiated in the in Catholic teaching, and that um, and that religion is a good thing, and that it actually is a good thing for people to uh, to search after God, and as the Second Vatican Council says, to to search for the truth and to cling to it once it's found. Um, and there's no inconsistency there. It's it's um we can say at the same time um, there is a truth and people ought to search for it and ought to embrace it. And we can say that because um, we're endowed by our creator with dignity, that it has to be a matter of free choice, whether or not to embrace that truth. And yet we add, this is my freedom for point. I think in the Catholic context, we, we do think that it's perfectly appropriate. Indeed, it's a good thing for governments to, um, in a sense, to treat religious freedom as a policy goal, as something they want to bring about, um, again, like clean air or clean water. Um, it's appropriate for governments, and it's not coercive if they do this, to think about the conditions that religious institutions need 
to thrive. And again, I, I mentioned the tax exemption as an example, but there, there'd be other ones. For example, in, in the school choice context, um, it is certainly the Catholic position that governments ought to provide the resources that parents need so that they can make the choice they want to make um, when it comes to the education of their children. So it's not a violation of the separation of church and state in the Catholic view for governments to provide support to, to parochial schools. Again, so long as parents are the ones that are doing the choosing. For, for a while in American law, there was some confusion on this point. There was a misunderstanding of church-state separation, but I think they've, the courts improved. It's important to remember, I'm sorry if this is a little bit of a tangent, but you know, in American discussions, we hear that phrase separation of church and state a lot. Um, that's a phrase that Pope Benedict was perfectly happy, uh, Pope Emeritus ben Benedict was perfectly happy to use. But by separation of church and state, he didn't mean hostility of government toward religion. And he didn't mean that religion should be excluded from the public square or that religious symbols were inappropriate in public life. What he meant and what the Catholic tradition means by this term is that religious and political institutions are distinct. They can cooperate, but they're not the same thing. Um, you know, the government, the president shouldn't get to pick uh, uh, the Bishop of Washington, the Archbishop of Washington, D.C., and the Archbishop of Washington, D.C. shouldn't get to set the tax rates for the District of Columbia. There's a distinction between religious and political authorities. But again, that, that kind of healthy distinction um, is not, not the result of a hostility to religion. It seems to me that one of the challenges when we're doing advocacy for religious freedom, it's easiest to make the freedom of religion argument, I think. A an example of this, I would say, is in something that we were involved in was disaster relief funds for houses of worship, which yep. was primarily, primarily led by our um, Jewish groups, but we sort of were partners with them in, in pushing for this. Because when you've had some of these natural disasters and they destroy synagogues and churches, there's all these funds from, from FEMA that are available for zoos and museums and stuff like that. But then those churches that were destroyed or synagogues, they didn't get, they weren't, they couldn't access those. Um, and that is different in some ways, even in a parochial school, because you're talking about rebuilding a house of worship with government money. So it's, but it's easier. I, I found like in our advocacy on that, we did make, we would use the quote from Dignitatis Humanae about fostering the religious life and saying religion is a, it's a public good, but it still feels a little bit easier to make the freedom of religion, just say, just treat us the same as everyone else. You know, it just doesn't, that doesn't seem fair. And I think part of the reason for that, um, just from the cultural and in terms of our cultural place or moment right now in the United States is that if you have a lot of people who don't, who don't think of religion as a good thing, you have people who are unaffiliated from religion or, or maybe even view religion as negatively um, that that seems to be one of those conditions you need for freedom for religion is that you have a people who actually practice religion. So I wonder if you could comment on that on how kind of our cultural moment interacts with with this with this view. I mean, how do you have freedom for religion in in a culture where people don't appreciate religion? Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, so. First, with respect to your disaster relief uh, reminder, that, that's a great example. And it's, a, it's an example of how the Supreme Court has 
refined its thinking uh, and how courts generally have refined their thinking about what church-state separation really means. So there was a time when we might have thought, look, separation of church and state means no money and no support can go to religious institutions, period. But that can't be right. I mean, if, if a church is burning down, the fireman's going to go put it out, right? Uh, and the courts always understood that. And so I think like in the disaster relief context, you're right that the freedom of religion argument is a pretty powerful one, because in a sense, you're saying, look, the public has an interest, an entirely secular interest, in there not being a bunch of dilapidated, dangerous, falling down buildings after a flood or an earthquake. And so the reason why the government is treating, is helping to fund, say, the rebuilding of a church structure is not because it's trying to, you know, establish a particular denomination or um, you know, directly fund religious worship. It's pursuing a secular interest, namely not having collapsing buildings, which are dangerous, right? Um, a similar example to your disaster relief um, one, I think, is the uh, paycheck protection policies that we put in place after the um, COVID broke out, right? There were some people who objected to the fact that many people who worked for religious institutions were allowed to benefit from these paycheck protection policies. They said, well, you know, what's the government doing paying the salaries of a church worker? And again, generally speaking, that's not appropriate because one of the oldest forms of religious establishment was for the government to um, fund the clergy. But there was an easy freedom of religion response, which is no, the government's goal here is secular. We're just trying to make sure that people who are working can stay employed during this tricky time of lockdowns. And so we're, we're supporting these people, not because they're religious workers, but because they're workers. So I, just to confirm your point, it, it reminds us that separation of church and state does not prevent um, cooperation in pursuit of public goals, whether it's education, healthcare, or disaster relief. Now, you moved from that to a, a really important question about sort of the cultural conditions for religious freedom. And, you know, good laws are important and good policies are important, but you're right to suggest that religious freedom is going to be more vulnerable, especially in its freedom for religion sense, it's going to be more vulnerable if the culture loses or gives up on a sense that, that religious freedom is a good thing, and that religion matters. That is, if a culture starts to think that religion is, again, just kind of like any other hobby, or indeed, if a culture starts to think that religion is bad, right, it's anti-science or it's discriminatory or whatever, such a culture is going to be less likely to appreciate the importance of religion, and therefore it's going to be less likely to take care of the conditions that religious freedom needs to thrive. And some would suggest that we're moving in that direction in our country. You know, there are more and more people who say they're spiritual but not religious. There are more and more people who are disconnected from religious institutions of all kinds. There are more and more people who seem to, uh, quite hostile to religious teachings and religious institutions. And so given those conditions, we probably shouldn't be surprised if there's a little less enthusiasm for the freedom for religion dimension, which makes it all the more important, I think, for us to um, make the case for why that aspect of religious freedom matters. Um, and it does matter. I, here's just an, uh, an example of where freedom of religion isn't enough. So, you know, I talked about how when you're thinking of in terms of freedom of religion, you think about equal treatment, right? Just don't 
treat religious institutions the same. But sometimes religious institutions have to be treated differently, not worse, but specially. And a good example of this has to do with um, the uh, uh, employment decisions that religious institutions make about ministers. Um, we're pretty used to governments allowed to tell Walmart what its hiring rules are going to be. You know, the government can tell Walmart, you can't, you know, discriminate on the basis of religion when you're hiring people. But um, a religious institution does need to be able to make employment decisions that reflect its mission and its charism and its character. So this means that the employment laws that govern um, a grocery store should not be applied to a Catholic school or to a, a, a parish, right? And there've been some cases about this and the Supreme Court has quite clearly embraced the idea that the freedom of religion means that religious institutions have special authority to select their own ministers, to choose their own teachings, to decide who their leaders are gonna be. And that this means that in the employment law context, they're going to be treated differently. So that's an example of where freedom of religion probably wouldn't get us as far as we need to go. But to your point, these cases might well become more controversial if the culture stops thinking of there being anything special about religion. Um, when we think about religious freedom, um, I think that and going back to that very first question, do people have something different in mind when they think about religious freedom? I think most of the time people are thinking about individuals not being coerced. And obviously that's important. And so many of the, the kind of stories we tell about religious freedom, especially if we're talking about martyrs or things like that, we're talking about individuals who, who are true to their conscience or something like that. And so, but it's, important to make the case that religious freedom is also for entire institutions. And again, we've kind of talked about this a little bit in talking about, you know, the church being able or religious institutions being able to make their own decisions and hiring and things like that's about the institution, not just about individuals. But can you just say a little bit more to make that case for why religious freedom matters, not just for individuals, but for institutions? Yeah. Uh, it's a great point. I mean, religious freedom has uh, a personal or individual dimension, and it also has a social or communal dimension. So, um, as you said, we're we're very used to thinking about kind of heroic individual martyrs. We're used to thinking about religious freedom in terms of the the conscience. Um, think of the movie adaptation of Saint Thomas More's life, where at least in the movie adaptation. Um, uh, the real struggle had to do with St. Thomas More's own personal conscience and his reluctance, his refusal to say something that he thought was not true. And, and that's a very important dimension of religious freedom. So, you know, religious believers as persons have a right to not be coerced, have a right to not be discriminated against on account of their religion and so on. But um, in the Catholic Church's tradition and also in the American constitutional tradition, it's very clear that part of what religious freedom involves is um, the freedom to come together, to form groups, to form communities, congregations, to worship together, to pray together. Religious, uh, religion needs these social structures to thrive and survive. It's difficult for a religion to survive simply in the minds of a particular person. This includes the freedom of a religious institution to decide for itself 
as a group, as a community, what its liturgy will be, what its teachings and requirements will be, who will be a member and who won't, uh, who will be a leader or a minister and who won't. If the government was able to supervise, you know, what a religious community's membership requirements were or what its creed would be or who its leaders would be, then it wouldn't, it really wouldn't be free. And again, we've seen this in uh, some jurisdictions around the world. We've seen it throughout history. But I think one of the achievements in the American experiment in religious freedom has been to appreciate the fact that religious communities do have some self-government rights. Um, not, not unlimited, obviously. I mean, religious groups have to abide by all kinds of laws and they can't abuse their members. But at the same time, we've recognized that there's something different about a religious community that separates it from, you know, like I said, a grocery store, or even frankly from a, a Boy Scout troop. Religious communities are are separate. Um, that church-state separation, again, understood in this positive sense, pro-religious sense. Um, church-state separation means that the government lets religious groups govern themselves. Again, as I, we've mentioned, the Second Vatican Council's religious freedom document several times. This this comes through very clearly in that document. You know, that document emphasizes human dignity, it emphasizes personal freedom, but it's uh, also very careful to emphasize the freedom of groups, the rights of religious communities to form schools, to uh, form agencies for carrying out charitable works and so on. So I think um, we're seeing a lot of attention in um, academic work and in litigation. Uh, this has been a, a focus of, of mine for many years. We've seen a lot of focus on the 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 role and the rights of religious groups you know one of the things that um uh some some unfree countries do that is one of the markers of an unfree country tends to be that even if they allow people to believe what they want they don't allow them to form associations and groups uh, they find these groups unsettling or threatening i think we can say this about the people's republic of china even today um, these countries tend to not have a vibrant civil society. But in the United States, that hasn't been our practice. I mean, you think back to, you know, when Alexis de Tocqueville is wandering through America, he's really struck by how America has all of these associations and groups that people just come together to promote common projects. And, and one of the uh, ways they do that is by forming church communities. And again, these church communities have a right to, to govern themselves and to uh, uh, control their membership and control their teachings, and that's important. Professor Garnett, you talked a little, we talked a little bit earlier about church teaching and you mentioned, you know, documents of Vatican II throughout your comments, but could you talk a little bit about church teaching? I mean, how does this come into play with the relationship, particularly with freedom for religion? Yeah, I, I think this is um, uh, a point that the church has emphasized and it's something that it's not unique to the Catholic tradition, but I think it is, has been distinctively developed in our tradition. And that is, again, an appreciation for the, for the following two facts. First, that the freedom of religion includes the freedom to come together as groups and that it really requires uh, groups and institutions and communities that, that we really can't um, enjoy true religious freedom by ourselves. And then the second point is that um, the church has insisted that governments should respect this fact, that governments should 
respect the in the appropriate independence of religious institutions. Their their right to be themselves should not make them water down their character just because um, they happen to be engaged in providing public services. So a Catholic hospital should be able to be a Catholic hospital. Um, a Catholic school should be able to be a Catholic school. And the government should also think about ways to um, facilitate these groups doing the good works that they do. And again, we mentioned the tax exemption example. I mentioned the school voucher example. These are ways that governments help religious institutions to thrive, not because they're interfering in religious um, liturgy and worship, but because they're doing their appropriate part to uh, support these institutions that are necessary for human flourishing. And again, even in a community that respects separation of church and state, like ours does, it's perfectly fine for the government to say, you know what, these institutions are important to the common good. And so we are going to do what we can to help them to do their own works. And that's that's something that I think in the Catholic context, we've tended to emphasize. You know, we like to end with, we usually like to try to end with something that's that's practical. Uh, I think that that's a, a little bit tough with this because we've just been trying to talk about a more general definition of of just what is religious freedom and trying to un get a better kind of handle on what it is we're even talking about when we talk about religious freedom. But I do think that there is something that you can get at that's practical here, which is that this point, which gets at this point about what kind of culture or what kind of society we live in. Um, when we talk about religious freedom being partly about freedom for religion involves having a certain set of conditions to be truly free, there obviously the law is important, but there are also some cultural conditions that need to be there. To be truly free involves living in a society where people actively seek religious truth. Do you have any thoughts on how, you know, just regular Catholic in the pew? How can we how can we build that kind of society? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Obviously, there's there's lots of work for you know lawyers and um, activists to do in terms of promoting certain policies or filing lawsuits uh, and such. But I think um, you're right to remind people that at the end of the day, religious freedom in this rich, full sense depends on the efforts of, of believers, of, of folks in the pews, of, of people in our communities and neighborhoods and parishes. So I think it's very important for Christians and especially for Catholics, you know, we have a, we don't always do as well at this as we should have, but to throw ourselves into our institutions, right? Um, if we want religious institutions and groups and societies to thrive, we need to do our part to create the necessary conditions for that thriving. And that means volunteering. That means participating in religious institutions. And it means supporting them financially. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a good thing to uh, pray at home uh, and uh, it's a good thing to, to go to mass on Sunday. It's a, it's a necessary thing, but we shouldn't settle for that. Um, if we're gonna do our part to help support religious freedom in its social sense, we should be thinking about what we can do to help crisis pregnancy centers, uh, parochial schools, Catholic hospice care providers, um, those institutions, again, depend on, they don't, they don't run of their own accord. They depend mm -hmm. on our support. 
So I, I would just urge all Catholics to not settle for a solitary faith, to, to, to really think about what they can do to kind of thicken up the life of the church by participating in these institutions uh, and by supporting these, uh, the group ministries that these institutions engage in. Um, and that can have a very important um, practical effect, not only of helping the groups do a better job, but also it's, it has kind of a modeling or evangelical role. You know, it, people notice, people see Catholics getting involved in uh, communal activities, group activities, helping to uh, spread the faith to others, helping just to do good works for other people, to educate other people's children, even if, um, you know, their kids might be out of school. Um, you know, an analogy to this in my, in my hometown right now, um, a lot of us are really worried that travel baseball is taking over and that community-based um, recreational baseball is, is suffering. And yeah, I played baseball as a kid. I liked it, but I was never particularly good. But I really, I really buy the idea that a community needs ways for low-income kids who can't afford to do travel baseball or for kids who just aren't very good uh, to be able to play rec league. But you know what? If a rec league is going to survive, it needs volunteers. So I've always been impressed in my town by people who commit a ton of time to these um, recreational little leagues, even when they don't have kids involved. Well, obviously, a, a church is not the same thing as a little league, um, but churches need people to be involved. So this, I would encourage everybody who's listening to us to think about the possibility that if you really care about religious freedom, figure out how you can volunteer at your parish, what you can do to support a Catholic school nearby, a Catholic hospital nearby, a soup kitchen, and so on. Uh, those, those institutions need our help. Professor Garnett, this has really been a great conversation. Um, I think it's helpful. I, I think this kind of back to basics type conversation, we probably can, we probably really can never overdo it. So I really appreciate this. I think it's a very, very helpful kind of cl clarifying way of understanding religious freedom, what you've talked about today. So thank you so much. Great. It's my pleasure. Thanks for all the work you're doing. So we've been talking with Rick Garnett about his recent essay. Um, it will be published very soon by the Committee for Religious Liberty at www.usccb.org slash blog. I'm Aaron Weldon. I don't know and if... I'm, I'm oh, here. Mary is here. Okay. <laughs> I can hear you. I just couldn't push any buttons. Okay. <laughs> And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.